Hi, I'm Tara. And I'm Alex. And this is Dream a Little Deeper, a critical retrospective on the Walt Disney Animation Studios films. Today, we're talking about the sword in the stone. So the issue that I've had with these history segments recently is the lack of non-Disney produced information. In most books that I'm reading, the animated films of the 1960s and 70s are referenced collectively with one sentence about the decade or era. If anything, this reinforces the point I've been making for the majority of our episode so far, that Walt was not invested in the animation department compared to other projects that Walt Disney Productions was pursuing. At the time of the Sword in the Stones production, Walt was far more invested in the hybrid animation live-action film Mary Poppins. He was also finding new ways to improve Disneyland, planning a second park on the East Coast, and thinking about setting up an art school, which would be a talent pipeline for the company. By the time we reached the 1960s, there isn't so much an interest in short cartoons as we saw in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. So during the early 60s, Walt's consumed with a bunch of different non-animation projects that I'll go into in our next two episodes. But I did briefly want to mention some changes to the company's television show that happened during the production of The Sword in the Stone. In 1961, Walt ended his contract with ABC and switched his show over to NBC. There's conflicting accounts of exactly what went down. Uh, Some say Walt wasn't happy that his show was stuck in black and white on ABC, while NBC had the most aggressive color programming. However, the Walt Disney documentary on PBS said ABC wasn't happy with the ratings on Walt's show and wanted to boot the program. So, he picked up and moved to NBC. His new show, Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color, was a place for live-action films that were intentionally created a little cheaper and not given a theatrical release in the United States. They were released theatrically overseas. So unlike the 1950s, Walt no longer uses his weekly hour-long special to promote his films hitting the big screens, as at this point they were all kind of interchangeable to him. Creating films for television gave him a stronger guarantee that his films would make a profit, and people loved the show. In his biography, Walt Disney, The Triumph of American Imagination, Neil Gabler notes that the sales of color television soared 105% from the previous September following the premiere of the program. With the switch, ABC loses its title of part owner of Disneyland and Disneyland Incorporated is merged into the parent company, which is just the start of a bunch of different mergers and growth that's going to propel Walt Disney Productions into a position to become the global powerhouse that we know of today. As I mentioned, the public sort of loses interest in short cartoons and animation as we reach the 1960s, meaning it's not a financially viable medium to dedicate time, personnel, and resources to. If people aren't going to go out and see the films, a company won't make its money back, so it doesn't make financial sense to them. As for Walt Disney Productions, executives were still scarred by how much money the company lost with Sleeping Beauty, a technically masterful film that cost a lot but didn't make the money back. Around the time of 101 Dalmatians' release, Walt Disney's brother Roy, who was in charge of the finances of the company, tried to persuade Walt to discontinue the animation department. Roy even said that if they shut down feature animation, Walt could have all the money he needed for his new East Coast Disneyland park. His argument was the company can make a decent profit by re-releasing the animated films they already made. Walt debated the idea for weeks, but in the end couldn't bring himself to do it. However, he did agree to scale back animation production and agreed to produce only one animated film at a time. 
This, coupled with the company's decision to majorly downsize the number of artists and animators on staff after Sleeping Beauty's financial failure, meant a bleak future for the animation department. In fact, if you look at the 52 films the company released in the 1960s, only three were animated films. This is a far cry from the 1940s when Walt decided he wanted to release an animated film every single year. So The Sword in the Stone is Walt Disney Productions' second animated film to be released in the 1960s. The movie is inspired by a 1938 novel by T.H. White of the same name, and also draws from some elements of his 1958 book, The Once and Future King. While both have the same basic plot, the book is a lot heavier than the final movie, and the characters are more nuanced. The book includes more extreme adventures, like a rescue mission from an ogre's castle. Alice Grenler says it has a, quote, multifaceted, ambivalent, misogynistic, and often contradictory and darkly pessimistic view of human nature, end quote. The book spans several years, showing how Kay and Arthur were friends at one point and then grew apart, falling into the relationship that we see in the film. However, when adapting the book, Walt Disney Productions, as is typical, tried to make the story palatable for younger audiences. This resulted in the decision to just show Kay as the brutish 20-something-year-old and to keep Arthur younger. We never see that friendly dynamic between them. Pete wanted audiences to sympathize with Arthur and his situation. In order to accomplish this, Pete also removed any mention of Arthur being the destined king. He says doing so made the audience feel like Arthur earned his right to be king, and thus making him a more likable character. Walt thought the book had potential and bought the rights in 1939. However, not long after, progress on all animated films was halted because of World War II. And as we all know at this point, money was tight during the war years. A successful 1944 re-release of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs gave the company enough money to begin developing a handful of films, including The Sword and the Stone. But serious work on the film did not really begin until the late 1950s. The Sword in the Stone was originally supposed to follow the Sleeping Beauty, but Walt felt the two medieval fantasy stories were too similar in style, so he made some changes to the release schedule. In fact, Bill Pete was working on developing the Sword in the Stone when Walt gave him 101 Dalmatians to work on instead. Pete worked alongside Wolfgang Raetherman, who got his big break as director of the film after having a directorial apprenticeship on 101 Dalmatians. The two men did not always work well together. Pete says he spent two years on the whole development process for Sword in the Stone and ended up with a 51-page treatment um, that adapted the original text lightly um, so that the movie did not become a real drag, as he puts it. Raetherman was uncomfortable with it, thinking it lacked a lot of Disney's early feature characteristics and made that clear to Pete. The story of how the Sword in the Stone was approved for production is interesting, and really, Pete's success with 101 Dalmatians plays a big role in the decision. So remember a few minutes ago when I mentioned Roy's desire to discontinue the animation department and help the company's finances? and how Walt then agreed that they would only make one feature animation movie a year. So while Pete was working on developing The Sword in the Stone, basically by himself, the nine old men were working on their own pitch, an adaptation of the 1910 psychological drama Chanticleer by Edmund Rostand. Chanticleer is about a rooster who believes his crowing makes the sun rise and follows the plans of some animals to try and kill him. 
The nine old men tried to get Walt to pursue the project for 25 years. It came up as the company finished work on Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs in 1937. Walt put Ted Sears and Al Perks on the project to adapt the play. However, after a few weeks, they came back to Walt and insisted the play was too highbrow for American audiences and said they struggled to find a way to make the play's central character, Chanticleer, sympathetic. Walt tried to bring it back a few times in the 1940s and then became too preoccupied with Disneyland to really invest time in it, so the concept was shelved. Fast forward to the 1960s, the Nine Old Men resurrect the concept and spend six months meeting after work to draft scripts, put together storyboards, create pastel paintings. Mark Davis led the team and wanted to create a film with great songs, colorful characters, so basically the animation equivalent of a Broadway musical. To make Chanticleer more sympathetic, they had all the female animals fall in love with him and all the male animals wanted to become his friend. In fact, in the story, Chanticleer is so well-liked that they elect him as mayor of their animal town. But with this power, he makes some airheaded decisions and the other animals become annoyed with him. Enter Renard the Fox, the villain who manipulates the town to turn against Chanticleer and attempts to run for mayor instead. So there's a fight, Chanticleer realizes his errors, and then he becomes a good, kind-hearted leader. Floyd Norman, an animator who worked on Sleeping Beauty, Sword in the Stone, and Jungle Book, said the drawings were some of the most inspired he'd seen at the studio. Each animal had a distinct character within its design, and while it is an older play, the adaptation took place in a contemporary setting. They even got the Sherman brothers to write a couple songs that they could play for Walt during the pitch meeting. So Walt initially was thrilled with the idea, but secretly he worried about the success of the movie, noting that no one had adapted a decent cartoon from a play yet. But he let Davis work on the project in his spare time. So Walt let the nine old men and Pete pitch their concepts, with the intention of only allowing one to go into production. The nine old men went first with Chanticleer, and, well, I'm sure you can guess which pitch won out in the end. Basically, Walt canceled the project before the pitch meeting even began, but didn't tell Mark Davis. Walt and the executives were sitting in on the meeting, and they didn't think a rooster was an appealing protagonist. Afterwards, they kept referring to Chanticleer as a chicken while expressing their dislike for the pitch, saying you couldn't pet a chicken, a chicken wasn't relatable. Bill Pete has gone on to note in interviews that Walt's exact quote after the meeting was, quote, just one word, shit. <laughs> Okay, sure. And I would argue you can pet a chicken, but that's just me. <laughs> I think you can. I've held a chicken before. Yeah, chickens are great. They're fine. So really, I think the main issue with this pitch is that it looked expensive. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, Walt and Roy agreed to scale back on the feature animation film department. Walt later listened to Pete's pitch on The Sword and the Stone and gave him the green light. Some sources believe Pete got the go-ahead because of all his success with 101 Dalmatians. Walt didn't like that film, as we talked about last time, but even so, it made the company money and solidified Walt Disney Productions as the top producer of animation. But the Nine Old Men were pissed. Up until this point, their word was basically law in the animation department, especially as Walt pulled away to work on other projects. Animation historian Michael Barrier calls it a cautionary tale, one that says being part of this elite group was not a guarantee anymore. Many of the Nine Old Men went to work on The Sword of the Stone. 
As I mentioned before, Wolfgang Reitherman is completely in charge of the picture as director. Barrier says Walt chose him because he trusted him to know what the public would want to see, as he was, in Walt's words, an all-American boy. Barrier goes on to say that, quote, it was his hand more than Disney's that shaped the sword in the stone. Ken Anderson works as art director once again. Milk Hall directs animation and works as a character designer. Mark Davis, though, who created iconic characters like Snow White, Cinderella, and Cruella de Vil, switched over to the company Walt owned that created attractions for Disneyland. Walt actually called him up to ask him to move to that division, and notably during the call refused to bring up the Chanticleer pitch. But here's a fun fact. The world of animation did eventually see a Chanticleer adaptation. Don Bluth, who worked at Walt Disney Productions before leaving to start his own company, based his 1992 film Rockadoodle off the play. I've never oh seen it. <laughs> Keep it that way. Okay. It's absolutely atrocious. Uh, good to know. So, Walt gave Bill Pete a lot of freedom when it came to scripting the film. However, that didn't mean Walt and Pete worked well together. Pete was similar to Walt a creative visionary with an argumentative streak who would rather stay true to his vision than compromise with others. In fact, Ollie Johnson and Frank Thomas have gone on the record to say no one really worked well with Pete. Milk Call got especially frustrated, and it's implied this was due to Pete's leadership style, along with some residual bad feelings about the Chanticleer being passed up. But Walt and Pete did not work together often. As we've been establishing, Walt was busy focusing on other things. He went to a few story meetings, but attended without seeing any of the storyboards ahead of time. He did read the first draft of the script, sent it back asking for elaboration on more dramatic parts of the story, and then he ended up approving the second draft through a phone call while he was in Palm Springs. Animator Floyd Norman said the tension between Pete and everyone else on the team caused a few problems. He also notes story issues that could be drawn back to the unconventional process of making the movie. So the film was made chronologically. That means that Bill Pete would work on scenes in order and then hand them off to be animated. Norman says usually they would animate sequences out of order and do the easy ones first so that they could like kind of get the swing of it, but that's not how they did it. Because Bill Pete created the storyboards, he had a hand in designing the looks of the characters. And the Sword in the Stone actually did some unconventional character stylings for the time. Madame Mim, the villain that battles Merlin in a wizard's duel toward the end of the film, was notably drawn as a frowsy old lady. Walt did not like her design and wanted her to be a tall dame with dark hair. Pete, however, claimed that in these medieval films, that's what the villain always looked like and that he wanted to do something different. Not to mention he specifically styled Mim in a way to be a counterpart to Merlin, who notably defied the austere image of the wizard that popular culture solidified at the time. The book describes Merlin as an old curmudgeon, argumentative, temperamental, playful at times, and extremely intelligent. So Pete ran with that and made him this grouchy old man that we see in the film, a character who didn't take himself too seriously. Pete also notably based Merlin off Walt Disney, giving him Walt's nose and eyebrows. Oh my god. I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) And like knowing that while watching the film. That, that, That makes a lot more sense, actually. Okay, a few odd facts I found about the production process. You may notice when watching the film, I know I did when I was younger, that Arthur's voice changes a lot. Well, the voice actor hit puberty in the middle of the recording session, which is why it's in a different pitch in different scenes. So they had to hire a second boy to voice Arthur, and then he hit puberty, and so then the producers ran into the same issue. So Walt Disney Productions ended up hiring three boys to voice Arthur, 
Richard Reitherman, Robert Reitherman, and then Ricky Sorensen. And yes, the first two are the sons of the director. Um, the voice actors who play Merlin in the Owl Archimedes ended up switching roles, so fun fact. Um, and this is the first film with songs from the Sherman Brothers. They're known for their work in Mary Poppins and Winnie the Pooh. They wrote every song in the film except Mad Madam Mim, and then George Burns returns to compose the score. Uh, he joined the company with Sleeping Beauty, and then he'll stay around for the next three films. Even with 101 Dalmatians' financial success, the company continued to cut production costs wherever possible. Additionally, Walt didn't want to risk all that much on this film, so he cut the budget. A lot. Walt's budget for Pete with the film was 40% less than the budget with 101 Dalmatians. Because of this, Xerox Animation returns for a second time, but the process has improved. Beforehand, assistant animators had to transfer directing animator sketches onto new sheets of paper, which were then copied onto cells. This was called the cleanup process. But for this film, assistant animators were allowed to draw directly on animator sketches, which helped streamline the process. But some animators, Milkall, was worried about this, thinking assistant animators would end up ruining the drawings. While processes were streamlined, work expectations increased. Floyd Norman recalls the animator's boss, setting a new standard where animators had to produce 25 feet of drawings a week. He says back in the day, that was a considerable amount of footage for one person. And standards were high, with the nine old men overseeing production. Again, this was to reduce production costs. Because of this, we see a couple of instances where sequences are repeated in the film. Specifically, one sequence where Kay eats a turkey leg, which I think appeared like twice within like a minute and a half. So despite some major passive-aggressive animosity over Walt's reception of Chanticleer and then Pete's demeaning nature, animators say, at least compared to other films, production went by without any major issues. However, in retrospect, they say that maybe that's what caused a less than positive reception of the film when it premiered on Christmas Day in 1963. The film only made a million dollars to start, but ended up grossing 4.75 million in North America theater rentals after a few re-releases. With that being said, the company took a financial hit, which didn't please upper management. The critics didn't love it, and even today are dismissive of the film. Variety said it had good animation, um, but the storyline was thin and had too many twists. Um, Bosley Crowther with the New York Times loved it, loved the animation and the humor, um, which after reading a bunch of his reviews, it's actually rather positive for him because I've mentioned him a few times in these segments and I was kind of surprised by that. Um, Philip Schuer with the LA Times said it was more intimate, uh, a good bit livelier than Camelot the Staged Musical. And Jerry Beck said one of Disney's most forgettable features, a mild entertainment that bears little relation to the studio's classic era. Rob Gossage speculates a secondary reason for the movie's distaste, which Philip Schuer mentioned in his review. At the time the movie came out, Lerner and Lowe's musical Camelot, which is also based off the last two books by T.H. White's series, had captured American imagination and was praised by then-president John F. Kennedy. Therefore, quote, the American Arthurian myth was in a rare tragic mode, a Disney's tragically upbeat film with its narrative of democratic possibility accompanied by a faith in science and technology seemed suddenly out of keep with the national mood. While the story of the Sword in the Stone focuses on Arthur, Disney's marketing of the film took a different turn. 
publicity mainly focused on Merlin, and Disney even changed the title for the film in non-English-speaking countries to include Merlin in them. It was called Merlin the Enchanter in Spain, the Netherlands in France, and Merlin and Mim in West Germany. Floyd Norman has gone on to speculate that because Walt left Pete to do whatever he wanted, the film lacked that special Disney touch that captivated audiences. But with that being said, it did receive an Academy Award nomination for Best Score, and it hasn't been entirely forgotten. Uh, when I was doing research, it looks like there it is on the live-action remake list. Um, <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> but there's not a lot of information. From what I could find, it started development in 2015, so six years ago at this point. And there is a director who is slated to work on the film, but that's literally all we know. As for Walt's... Well, he wasn't really happy with the movie, shocker. Uh, meeting notes from pre-production of The Jungle Book, which is the next film the company made, strongly suggest Walt didn't care for the film, criticized it repeatedly, and put some of that blame on the director, Wolfgang Reitherman. However, because he was so invested in other projects, like a certain East Coast theme park, he didn't really care enough to do anything about it, and Reitherman will go on to direct the next couple of films. So after the film's release, the animation department really began to slow down its work in feature films, and we leave employees in this department unsure if or when projects would pick back up again. Loyal followers of this podcast know we're year three into this project. And within those three years, we've grabbed interviews here and there to make sure we had someone to talk about every film. In my notes, I noticed I'd marked three people who commented on Sword in the Stone, but it wasn't at all what I remembered or was expecting. Hannah Elright said she hadn't seen the film, along with other lesser-known Disney movies. I've seen, I think, most of them. Um, like, I, I haven't seen, like, you know, the really underground ones. I don't know if you can consider a Disney movie underground, but, like, Sword in the Stone I haven't seen. Erica confessed she often confused it with the Black Cauldron. I feel like for some reason I get, and I feel like because it's in a similar animation style, I feel like I get my memories of the Black Cauldron and my memories of Sword in the Stone mixed up. And Lindsay D was well into telling us what she liked about the Sword in the Stone before realizing she was talking about an entirely different film. I really like the Sword in the Stone. Say more. Why? <laughs> well, the Sword in the Stone is a great film where the daughter of one of King Arthur's Knights of the Round Table uh, gets to have her own adventure and save, uh, oh, I don't even remember what their town is called. Isn't it? Isn't that the right one? Oh no, it's not the Sword in the Stone. Oh no, I knew I was talking about the wrong movie this whole time. I know, I was like, are oh. you Are you talking about Quest for Camelot by chance? Yes, I'm talking about Quest for Camelot. Okay. Oh my gosh, even less, uh, shoot. And I find this general apathy and forgetfulness that surrounds the film is really common because Tara and I walked away feeling... Well, listen for yourself. Yes, yeah, a movie that exists. I wholeheartedly agree. This is one that I watched a lot as a kid. Yeah. And yet there... I'd say, like, after watching it a week ago, I think I remember it about as much as I did wa after watching it as a kid. Yeah, this thing has no staying power. It's no. kind of wild. It's very... It's bland, <laughs> in my opinion. 
So it wasn't until I was scrubbing interviews while editing a later episode that I found out we did talk to someone who had a pretty decent memory of the Sword in the Stone, and they said they liked it. Um, I really did like the Sword in the Stone as a kid. Yeah. We got that, I think, for Easter one time, and I would just watch that on replay. This is Sam Moody. We brought him on to talk in depth about Robin Hood, but toward the end of our interview, he made a comment about the Sword in the Stone. So we went down that rabbit hole with him for a bit. And as you'll hear, he had a pretty good memory of what went down. Going back a bit to, like, do you remember much else about Sword in the Stone? Because, like, no one really, like, the few people we have that talked about it were like, oh, it was this movie and this happened, and it wasn't that at all. They got, like, a bunch <laughs> of movies confused, so. Yeah, someone, someone <laughs> like, complete different movies. It's very funny. Like, different studios and everything. Really? Oh, That's yeah, funny. yeah. Um, yeah, so I remember, uh, his name's Arthur, right? Because mm-hmm. it's King Arthur. Yeah. yeah. He's, like, not the oldest. He's got, like, the older brother that's, like, masculine and manly and can fight. And he just kind of, Arthur just does chores around the house. And then I don't remember how he comes in contact with Merlin. But I know that, like, he kind of, like, helps him along and, like, trains him. Um, and it's like, here's how you do... Like, here's how I do magic. Here's how you do this. And then they run into Madame Mim, and she, like, tries to convince Arthur otherwise, I think. And I remember the big battle between Mim and Merlin. Um, I think some other stuff happens. And then Arthur has to go back and, like, I think there might be a war or something. And then he just, like, randomly grabs the sword. Oh, no, no, no. There's, like, a war happening, and his brother and, like, dad are fighting and he's like go grab my sword and so he runs back and grabs the sword and the stone and he's like that's not my sword you fool and then they all realize that arthur pulled the sword from the stone and then he becomes king that right it's even more low stakes than that they're they're at a tournament and he forgets his sword at home yeah (laughs) so there's not even a war happening there's not a war he's he's like ah i forgot my sword like you forget your keys I, I wrote down um, that you can definitely tell Reetherman directed this um, because he, when he was a line animator and then like one of the lead animators on films, he was in charge of like action sequences. Um, you know, so in like Lady and the Tramp, he did the whole sequence where Tramp like and the dogs run around and they get chased and it's mm-hmm. the, you know, the scary, dark, violinish bit. Um, and I felt like that made it made sense that he was in charge of this film because I felt like the more action-y sequences were the ones that stood out. But the problem was this movie had so much setup where there was no action and it was just people talking. And yeah. it's very it was very difficult to pay attention during those parts. But then when you think about like you know the um, the sequence where the big fish is chasing Merlin and Arthur is fish and you know, the squirrels when they're all squirrels and they're running around, um, the flying sequence with the, um, with the hawk and then the duel, they're not like Disney's best, but they are the better parts of the movie. I would argue. Right. Uh, much in the same way that like, we were like, this is our favorite part of the package films. And <laughs> yeah, man, I got major package film vibes from this fucking thing. Did you really? Yeah. 
even though it wasn't it was longer it it was longer but it didn't like it it felt about as long as the package films felt for Mm. me um and then also just the way it's structured like each chunk Mm. is a very distinct episodic thing yeah and they kind of could they could have been shuffled around in any order uh much like those package film segments could be um and just just not much here honestly um yeah it's interesting because i think you can also tell that they animated this and that pete wrote this like in order yeah because they definitely gain momentum i think as they go except you know like i because i felt more and more invested as it was going like the beginning i didn't care and then by the time we get to the wizards duel i'm like okay i'm actually like paying more attention now but that ending i think just kind of i hated it as a kid watching this movie i just always felt so unsatisfied with the ending because i feel and i i never really was able to articulate it back in the day but nowadays i think it's because no one really goes anywhere in this movie. Like, what are you talking about? Merlin goes to the future. <laughs> Merlin goes to Bermuda. I, I didn't mean physically. I mean, like, there's no, like, real, like, the only thing that actually, like, there's no consequence. Like, I guess the consequence that they try to set up is will Arthur get to be um, the the assistant 2k or not i forget what the word they used um squire squire the squire to k or not that's kind of the consequence but like as an audience you don't really want him to be the squire for k i feel like because k is an asshole yeah and so you're like well you feel like going with merlin's the better route but then merlin's also an asshole to him and is definitely kind of like yeah domineering like he it's like arthur's in between these two domineering forces right and i feel Uh like he just kind of gets paddled back and forth and honestly i feel like he'd be content with either way he's 12 like you know it's he's just kind of there but he just wants people to pick one honestly exactly he doesn't have that desire so it's very difficult to like feel like he went on a journey at all or that like he got to a point at the end of the movie where like you feel confident that like he can become king you know Like, it definitely does that thing that we were talking about. I I don't think we've talked about this yet, where, like, the crown doesn't fit his head. So, like, he hasn't grown into the role. But we don't leave him feeling confident that he's learned really anything. Yeah. No. He, he, like, he learned that big fish are scary. Mm Mm-hmm. Sam also noted that while he liked the movie, he wasn't a big fan of the ending. Yeah, I always thought the ending of that movie was weird because it seemed like it was the start of like another because like yeah he's the king now and like clearly doesn't know what he's doing and merlin's like oh like you're just gonna have to figure it out like go through some trials to become king and then it just ends there and i kind of wanted to see like what he would go through but just never, never made the follow-up i mean if I you want to know what he can go through there's some books you can read <laughs> <laughs> and also monty python exists <laughs> that's true I have seen Money Python. I have not read the books. And I'll be honest, like, watching this movie as a kid, I thought shit like wolves were going to be a bigger part of my life growing up. 
because <laughs> like that wolf just kind of ha- like is the, there for yeah. that whole first chunk of that movie. Yeah, and then like, it's gone. I, and it's gone. He gets to the top of the hill and he's like, "Actually, fuck this. I'm tired." Right. Which, honestly, dude, same. <laughs> fuck this. I'm tired. <laughs> We're over it. Um, over but yeah. It. Like there's yeah, and I think it contributes again to like what you were saying earlier about like it's a bunch of nothing. Yeah, it's it like it's it's pretty nothing. I like how this movie looks a lot. Really? Uh, yeah. No, oh, go. This why? is also like I like. I mean, again, like stuff that calls attention to the artifice of things. Uh, and I like how rough this is. It it feel and and also just the backgrounds and the medieval stuff feel like combined with the rougher xerox line art it feels like they took the backgrounds of like sleeping beauty mm-hmm. and sanded off the rough edges but kept the like color palette and rough aesthetic appeal and then just xeroxed over it which i think works really well mm. like especially that storybook at the beginning i'm like no this this is just sleeping beauty like yeah. the, the the caricatures inside that very good I totally agree with, I got major Sleeping Beauty vibes from the way the movie was set up and the way the very end as the camera is panning out and we see Arthur in the castle, right? Like, like you said, like the pictures in the books and like there's moments where I'm like, this just, it does, it feels like you're watching Sleeping Beauty. But then you have the middle that I feel is completely different from the tone that sets it up. Because when you have that storybook and you see these Renaissance, I'd say like Ivan Earl Light drawings, you know, it's not uh, like you said, they're kind of like sanded down. They're not to the, the level that they were, but you still have like the austere voice narrating it, you know, and then you have like the big booming voice of God who's like, who so forth pull the stone from this stone, you know? So you kind of like go in and you're thinking like, oh, maybe this is going to like, you have an idea, you feel like this is going to be like a more serious, um, movie in the vein of sleeping beauty but then like everything about the the content is so slapstick i'd say yeah um like you said like a package film in tone almost um like the Uh like the physical comedy of it is hilarious i think like there's moments where you know like like you said like when the wolf gets to the top of the hill and he falls down like that was funny you know like and you have characters who don't really take themselves seriously either yeah, so, I I would I wouldn't go so far as to say this this is the physical comedy is good. Uh, it's there. It's there. Sure. The only time the physical comedy works for me is during the the wizards duel mm-hmm. at the end, um, because it's actually like, oh, you're letting the animators be creative. Yeah. Like that's re- that's really clever as opposed to like draw this squirrel, draw these squirrel, draw the squirrel trying to be horny for this other squirrel. That I didn't like that scene. It's bad. But it's we can weird. Get, we'll, we'll get to that in a second. We'll get we'll get there in a <laughs> we'll bit. We'll get there. But like, I I was thinking about the storybook thing and the the movies we've seen so far that have like the storybook openings mm-hmm. have been like more princessy mm-hmm. and like we talked about it on the Sleeping Beauty episode and the notion that like the storybook motif at the be- at the beginning of the movie is like we're confident we are going back to something we know how to do mm-hmm. we're going back to a motif that we're used to. Uh, and then they botch it. So now I don't trust the storybook anymore. <laughs> well, I think that's kind of what they w- they were trying to do. You know, like, I think that was the goal. It just was not 
executed well. Yeah, and it's disappointing <laughs> as shit. Fucking, like, you say you felt, like, you say as a kid you felt unsatisfied by this ending. Mm-hmm. I think the ending, like, just taken as for what it is, the last, like, ten minutes of this movie, the actual Arthurian sword in the stone shit, the shit that the movie is titled after, mm-hmm. is the best stuff in the whole movie. Mm. Please, just give me a King Arthur movie, Disney. Please. Not now. Not now. You missed the boat. It's done. You can't do it again. But, like, th- like a Sleeping Beauty style like dark medieval tone art like arthurian legend like fuck yes please god in in like the in this time period absolutely i would eat that shit up yeah no it would be really good i agree i just but it it feels like it just feels like they blinked it yeah. feels like they were going to do it because the bones of that are there with our adult brains it's clear that this movie does not work as a story about king arthur with a medieval backdrop however sam mentioned the movie did succeed in this when he watched it as a kid because like, i liked all of the like medieval dual elements of that with like merlin and madame mim just duking it out with all the magic i thought that was really cool it seems like you really like the medieval era stuff I do, which, like, just being able to, like, say that, like, my brain doesn't immediately go there, but I think the elements of, like, chivalry and, like, epic good versus evil fights are, I guess, what attracts me, especially since I like, like, adventure-type films. Um, I like all the Marvel movies. Yeah. Well, it makes sense then, because, like, in these epic, like, good versus evil battles, like, good usually comes out and wins, right? Like, the evil and the scary thing is either, one, not really all that menacing, or two, like, you know it's gonna be gone at the end of it, right? So there's that comfort level with that as well. Which I get. Yeah, Yeah, like, that totally makes sense. They decided to focus on things that are so irrelevant, it feels like. Especially because, like, mm -hmm. when you have Merlin guiding Arthur on these lessons, and Arthur doesn't, shows no sign of retaining anything or advancing through them. Yeah. So it's just like you have these three vignettes that are the same. Yeah. Merlin's also just a fucking shit teacher, honestly. (laughs) He really is. But I think the movie's aware of that. Like,. Uh, mm, I think so to a de- to a degree, but like when Merlin is like when 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 they're fish, and Merlin hides in the helmet, and is and uh and Arthur is like, hey, can I get some help here? He's like, lol, no, you won't learn otherwise. <laughs> Merlin, I was watching this, and like my roommate came down in that moment, and she was like, why does Merlin just want Arthur to die all the time in this movie? Like, he just does not care for this kid. Um, <laughs> which, like, you know, they were trying to go for, like, a more, you know, less austere, curmudgeonly Merlin, right? Like, grouchy old man Merlin. Which, like, in in the Arthurian stuff I've read that involves Merlin, he's a fucking jackass. Yeah. So I guess that makes sense. But, like, come on. Arthur's yes. important to <laughs> He is, and it's kind of, and like, but because Merlin is also so ineffective at teaching him, it kind of, like, undercuts the f- the notion that Arthur is supposed to be important. You yeah. know, like, the in the very beginning, I remember thinking, like, the narrator was talking about how, you know, all the lands of England had been laid to, like, 
crime and you know just horribleness you never it's so see that fucking funny it's so funny because you never also, get like, the indication that's happening no you don't but it's also extremely funny because like their their depiction of england at this time is like it feels very like uh pre-modern like medieval so like mm. I, this is not my area of expertise so i'm just going off of the feel but it feels almost like 14 1500s like there's more civilization here than would have been at the time of like arthur mm -hmm. uh so i'm just like what are, what are, what are, what are we doing here <laughs> london would not look like that london would not have fucking windows when arthur shows up right like what it, it's it's weird to me yeah because you're right there really is no sense of place at all because yeah all the events are so mostly isolated to nature, you know, cause uh -huh. every time, like really like every time the majority of the movie, I'd say is like out in nature. And then you have like the one slowly, not even slowly de decomposing castle that they all live in. Right. But that's like your whole scope of England. And so again, like you see all of this and you're like, okay, so what's the importance of Arthur becoming King here? Like, why are we like, you don't like, there's no, Again, we talk a lot about how Disney tends to neglect, you know, focus, like, you know, kind of indicate that there's, like, a societal unrest or a societal influence yeah. on what's happening in the story, but, like, don't go into that. We talked yeah, about that last episode. they don't want to show it. They don't want to show it, and that really works in the, not in this movie's favor. Yeah, it work, It very much works against what they're trying to do. Yes. Uh, because it function. it honestly society looks like it's functioning function as far as we see it looks like it's doing just fine without a king and yeah. to that i say good <laughs> keep it up fuck like that's that's the weird thing with the end of this movie for me mm -hmm. because if you know me personally this will not be this like, half of the sentence will not may be surprising at all one fuck the monarchy but also we love to see a we love to see a divinely ordained king reclaim his throne <laughs> Uh, we truly love to see it. We love to see it. It's just it's a it's a it's a emotional moment. It's a good moment. It's like it can when done well. Um, but yeah, and I think that brings up a good point. Like in everything, like in any sort of monarchy study I've done in media, like you know the the point that a lot of these movies try to make, at least the ones I've seen, is this tension between like the monarch and the public, right? Mm -hmm. But we don't really get either of we don't get that tension in here right so there's no no like tension to compel and like it, even the existence of monarchy in this movie like as a yeah. kid if i'm being completely honest because i was really young when i watched this i thought that Kay's dad was the king or like the yeah. king of like his area and so then i was confused because i knew nothing about arthurian legend so then i was confused as to why arthur became king but was in a different castle um yeah so like the whole like society system of how this all plays out makes no sense either yeah no they're they're really not good at conveying what the societal structure here is like mm -hmm. and it it's so fucking frustrating as somebody that deeply cares about that kind of shit right like i'd watch an entire i i have and will watch entire movies about just like the political bullshit of this kind of stuff like that's the shit in game of thrones i always found more interesting about just like the pol politicking and the maneuvering like that kind of stuff is way more interesting than boy turn into bird 
Boy fly around. Boy fly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So it's like they missed all the important parts <laughs> of what makes. And I get it. Like Pete was trying to do something different. It just didn't. It 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 overall it doesn't work. It's a very in my opinion. It's a very bad fan fiction. You know, it's kind of like it's kind of like yeah. an Arthurian fan fiction. But I like, mean, all I I would see that's the thing. All Arthurian legends are fan fictions. It, like that's the that's the great thing. There is no like. Uh, it's the, the coffee Once shop King AU is... version of a fan fiction. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This does feel very coffee shop AU. Right. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Uh, which is also fun in a way because going back to Merlin, Merlin kind of feels like a prototype of genie in a lot of different ways. Uh, not in terms mm-hmm. of like demeanor, mm-hmm. but. Uh, the, his last line the last line in the movie is his and he ends the movie on making a joke about how they might make motion pictures of 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 Arthur's story and Arthur's like what is that and he's like oh it's like TV but with less commercials <laughs> and I'm like that that like that shit taken to 11 is what Robin Williams does throughout all of Aladdin Merlin also has a moment like that in the move in the beginning of the movie um, uh-huh he's our end to the movie i think and i think like he just shows that he's very like he doesn't directly almost break the fourth wall or like tap the fourth wall like that but you should like yeah. he gives the indication that he's very fourth wall aware and i'd say right. that's by acknowledging kind of like he did there like assets of 1960 united states society that the audience would know but obviously but, like, everyone else should. yeah yeah and like merlin in myth is like timeline aware basically like he knows he can kind of see the future but not super well Mm -hmm. like he knows what's going to he knows what is going to be his death he knows arthur's bound to become the king he knows when like arthur's going to show up at his door so like there's that metatextual and intertextual awareness uh of the character specifically Mm -hmm. um but also i did have a note when he was doing that and i just wrote down fourth wall never heard of her (laughs) Because, like, it's it's not as explicit as Genie, but he's still, like, moving externally to the text in some weird ways. Right. Yes, he is. And even the fact that, like, when he comes back from Bermuda... He's wearing Bermuda shorts. Yeah, and, like, a Hawaiian shirt, you know? Like, he looks like he doesn't fit there. I think a lot yeah. of the times he kind of touts that knowledge kind of as a fourth wall wink but also i think just to show he's smarter than everyone else yeah i mean you're right yeah yeah like he enjoys talking about things that no one else understands which makes him i think like we were talking about an ineffective teacher yeah yeah that's fair (laughs) how'd you feel about archimedes by the way i don't know he like I thought he was not. I liked him. <laughs> I liked him too. Why do you think? Why do you think when I ask you these questions that I'm I'm looking for a negative answer? Oh, I don't know. I just assume, I don't know. <laughs> you should know me well enough to know that I ask dumb leading questions. I fucking loved Archimedes. Archimedes I even wrote is great. a note. He, um, I think he is so relatable. <laughs> like when his house is flooding and he still refuses to come out. I was like, yeah. I'll turn you into a human. You wouldn't dare. <laughs> but then, like, 
I think he's so compelling because he's the only character in this movie that actually has an emotional arc. And that yeah. is, he doesn't like Arthur at first. But and then, then he does. He becomes like a good, like older, like a good mentor figure for him. An, an actually good teacher. Yes. Like, you know, he's the one who actually teaches Arthur or tries to start to teach Arthur how to write. And then even when like the wizard's duel is happening, like Archimedes is like, oh, watch out, boy, you know, and like protects him with his feathers from like everything happening, you know, because like he genuinely cares about him. Um, Also, just when he was so wet at that one point and just Uh, did not stop dripping, I like, (laughs) I felt that. I was like, I know that feeling and I hate it. It's the worst. It's the absolute worst feeling Mm. in the world. Yes. Uh, The moment where I was just like, oh, no, I I feel Archimedes on a fundamental level is when Merlin's packing and doing his whole musical number. Mm -hmm. And Archimedes is like, fuck this, I'm getting in my house. And then his house starts dancing and it shrinks. And he's like, no, 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 no. (laughs) Just like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I love, like, again, and it's, like, moments like that that I think the movie does shine in, right? Like, they do, like, again, it's, like, and it's in these action-y kind of sequences, too, you know, like, the dancing happening, and then, like, I love watching, like, the house shrinks, and then you just see his eye poking through the hole as it gets smaller, and then he just, like, so good and he and he calls merlin a blundering blockhead and it's just like close up on his face and it's just like complete like again one of the benefits of xerox line art is that all of the lines are just like constantly moving Mm -hmm. in a way that like the old ones weren't because they were a little bit more static yeah because they took more care in each individual frame not to say there wasn't care in this but you know what i'm saying right and it it communicates the the agitation a lot better in Mm -hmm. my opinion that makes sense that makes sense well, it works. Yeah. It works very well. Um, but yeah, no, we stand Archimedes. I think he's the like one of the best parts of the film, if not yeah. the best part of the film. And I think it's also just, re- last thought on him, it's refreshing to have someone actually like stand up to Merlin and point out how delusional he is sometimes. Yep. It's very satisfying. More on that, like, that, that, that section. Like, um... Merlin feels like he's auditioning to be in like Fantasia 2000 through most of this because everything he does have has a musical cue associated with it. Mm. Like every time his furniture moves, there's like bump 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 along with it, and then uh, specifically his uh, prestidig- prestidigitonium, that whole musical number he does while he's packing, really does feel like it could like it's it's like. Uh, someone is auditioning and doing a reel for like, I want to work on a Fantasia. Here's how we can do it with like more poppy stuff. Mm. Which I don't know. I thought that was cool. I thought that was cool that like, even now, like the vestiges of that are still hanging around. They haven't completely killed it within the studio. It was fun. That part. And then like, I'd say the dishwashing was pretty repetitive, but even just like the way like he would go sweepity and then the room would go did you do like <laughs> yeah sweepity i i Hello. i like the i like the dishwashing sequence because it kicks the shit out of k and uh <laughs> his i think dad. ed 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 not edgar ector 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 yeah uh 
on the note of those people, fucking Sir Pelinor, his mustache sucks. I hate it so much. Fuck that man's stupid bristly mustache. Oh, because it does a little like, like the little yeah that thing. Yeah, and just uh, mm, ah, I've had I bad bad texture, bad vibes. Don't like it. Bad touch, bad feel, bad feel, bad feel. Just bad, bad, so bad. Yeah, I himself fine mustache bad. Shave that shit. (laughs) Fuck you. So hate whole character based on mustache. Yeah. Even though he's the one who was actually encouraging Arthur to pull the sword out of the stone while everyone else was like trying to. Well, there's also the there's also the hot guy with the really deep voice who's like, "Let the boy do it," and I'm just like, "Yeah, no, anything that man says, yes, please." He does have a really nice voice. I thought the same thing, and like the nice beard too. And you're Uh like, "Hmm, Hmm. hi, (laughs) hello there, hi, twirls hair." (laughs) Ah, yeah, no. Even as a kid, I remember just being very comforted by that voice. I mean, like. Tonight, that that guy did a good job. Yeah. <laughs> I also remember, like a like, coded sexuality scene between like squirrels in that <laughs> film. Is that true? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Really horny in this movie. They're so horny. Oh my god. It's del- it's, I was going to say it's delightful. It's very funny. I don't know if it's delightful. It's just the, those... those Because Marlin and Arthur... Merlin turns them into squirrels for some sort of lesson. And then, like, two female squirrels just are really into them and keep hitting on them. And it's, like, this whole thing where, like, they both are like, please stop. And they're like, but you're so cute. I just want to hug you. Like... Yeah, it must have been springtime when they were going through that lesson. Twitter painted. Looking back, I think this reaction that Tara and I had is rather funny because after watching the film, we didn't take this scene as lightly. The squirrels are out here enforcing the gender binary and gender essentialism, and it sucks. Yeah, there was a lot with the squirrels that rubbed me the wrong way well, like don't worry that squirrel is rubbing walt uh wart the wrong way too in more ways than one yep um that was the joke alex i know i was just saying that in case people didn't know when <laughs> just establishing even merlin's song was very oh, much yeah. like oh no it's rapey. it was so uh, rapey well and gender essentialist as hell. Like, all she knows is he's a him and she's a her. I'm sitting here like, this is rude. I don't like it. <laughs> it's like, excuse me. Um, no. <laughs> That's not how but this works. The more she she'll keep insisting her him has got to be you. Like, mm-hmm. and then there are no rules to this. It's like, ah. Cons- consent? Cons- consent. Never, never heard of it. Never, Never heard, heard of, of it. it. It's like... Like, she is assaulting Arthur yes. this entire time, and it's and played Merlin's as a joke. And Merlin's okay with it. Merlin He's like, that's just fu- the way it goes. Yeah, Merlin thinks it's funny until it starts happening to him, which is peak cishet white guy, honestly. <laughs> that was satisfying, but then it doesn't excuse the fact that it's it's still, like, it happens, and you're just sitting there, and you're watching this, and you're like... 
am I literally going to watch a 12-year-old boy get assaulted by a squirrel in this movie? Like, is this yes, what you we're are. Gonna... <sighs> but it's okay, because um, she doesn't know any better. Because she's a squirrel. Because she's a squirrel. Um, and also, though, if she's chasing you, then that means you have to do what she wants. But, like, Ugh. when you think about it, like, and I'm not praising this at all, but it does offer a narrative that I think we don't often see, and that's, like, you know, oftentimes when you talk about assault narratives, it's usually, like, typically women are the ones who are the victims in those situations. So it is Arthur in this situation, though, and Merlin, right? Like, they're the mostly Arthur, I would say. Well, and also Merlin. But it's like the the men are the ones who are the victims in this situation, right? Like, right. And it's, But I think it makes sense, though, because this is a very... It's a male narrative, you know? Like, you see, mm-hmm. like, these men... Like, these male relationships, and I feel like we see more variety than we do in most movies, or that we've seen so far you know like i don't know what what was i watching the other day i was watching something oh gosh okay i need to think it was this movie and it talked about how this thing and it was it weren't mm. i need more details than this thing and how it did the what (laughs) i think it was a video or a tiktok oh okay and it was in support of this movie and it was, I'm like seeing flashes of it in my head right now. Oh, yeah. Okay. So it was, have you heard of the rom-com um, Kate and Leopold? No. Okay. So it's this rom-com from like late 90s, early 2000s starring Hugh Jackman and Meg Ryan, where Hugh Jackman plays the guy who ends up inventing the elevator. Um, but he falls off the unbuilt Brooklyn Bridge, falls through a wormhole, and ends up in modern-day New York City. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? <laughs> Meanwhile, why are Alex? Why are rom-coms like this? Because why they've been are so over- like this. Because they've been so overdone that they need something to spice it up, I guess. But no, so. Uh... <laughs> So he falls through a wormhole, ends up in modern day New York City, um, and ends up falling in love with Meg Ryan, who's like a very prominent producer in New York City. She's like a commercial producer. Um, so like businesswoman, blah, 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 blah. And the article I read was like, the romance in this doesn't make sense, but the director understands how to create male relationships, like friendships and camaraderie, because you see way more depth and variety in those than you do between Hugh Jackman and and Meg Ryan. Um, That was the argument of the article. But I don't say this does it to that extent, but I think there's more, like, like, that's definitely, like, the focus in this whole movie and i think because of that that's why looping it back down to the squirrel scenario the men in the situation are the victims in the assault and all of that right end story i think i i'm with you yeah i'm with you i could be with you more if i thought the if i believed for a second the movie knew what it was doing yes uh this is played entirely for laughs and the movie does not see them as assault victims no i know that and it fucking sucks it does 
because they're like oh no it's just funny and it's like no it's, it's funny it's not. let's not talk let's not pretend like it's funny end of story yeah. well yeah because when you think about it there are three women in the whole movie and that is young squirrel older squirrel and madam mm. mim yeah and all of them i think are very like when you like again they're very i'd say color like i don't want to say colorful but they are more they have more like spunk to them than i feel like anita did yet last week and you know like they definitely like of course the two are squirrels right so you kind of have to you have to take that in mind <laughs> but you have of these- course they have more energy they're squirrels right but you still do have these three female characters who are very energetic well, that, hang on a minute yeah calling the two squirrels characters might be a bit of a stretch okay what would they be then <laughs> presences presences three female presences where the women like definitely go after what they want you know the two squirrels want to hook up with merlin and arthur madame mim just wants to be a nuisance because she enjoys that kill merlin and kill merlin right but but the point being is female presences in this movie are uh, what's the right word like uh, mm a threat yeah consistently weaponized yes um which i think is excuse me which i think is very interesting um and especially given that this is like based off of our you know arthurian legend and all of that i don't know much about arthurian legend so i don't know like what gender politics are like there but yeah again like and i think it just reinforces this like male camaraderie vibe that i get from the movie not saying that was the intention but you never know these guys hate women so like (laughs) yeah they're just all about making them threats and shit but yeah end of story end of story (laughs) end of story goodbye the end what else i got i i made this note at some point um and I can't remember quite when it pops up, mm-hmm. but I have written down Merlin, quote, rock bottom rules, hashtag grind set. <laughs> I don't, re- I think there was, I think it was about the point where, uh, where Arthur is like, I'm not going to be the squire. And Merlin's like, good. If you're at the bottom, there's nowhere to go but up. <laughs> and I'm just like, Merlin, <laughs> you need to chill. <laughs> Calm down, boy. <laughs> Uh, Merlin out here being like, and I hustled. I didn't take vacation for seven years. <laughs> you just Hashtag have to grind set. You just have to work for your dreams and be your own boss ass bitch. <laughs> God. Uh, um, who do you think the main character is of this movie? <sighs> I mean, ostensibly, it's Arthur. Or it's it's Arthur, right? Like right. ostensibly, but knowing that it was fucking that Merlin and Archimedes are the fucking title characters in other countries, like they they drive most of the plot. They like do the most. Mm-hmm. Like, I think I think 
if we're talking about who the like main characters are, it's Merlin and Archimedes. But if we're talking about who like the protagonist is defined to be, I think that's still Arthur. Yeah. Because like at the end of the day, it is kind of Arthur's story, despite what the fact that he's not really driving the the narrative. Yeah. And that be, and like he just kind of falls into situations. Uh, that Archimedes, that Merlin specifically pushes him into. They gave Arthur the Disney princess treatment. They did. Like literally. <laughs> like yeah. again, we we've been comparing this movie to Sleeping Beauty, right? Just in terms of aesthetics. But I re- remember when we talked about Sleeping Beauty, we were like, you know, everyone assumes the movie is about Aurora, but yeah. really it's the three the fairy godmother, not the, uh-huh. not fairy god, the three fairies. Yeah. Who are like tip really the main characters of the film. And I feel like that the same thing is happening here, right? Like Arthur, at least in the US, may be the face on the VHS tape or right. what the the clamshell. But when you think about like you said, who's dry like the drivers, the people that the action is really happening to, it's yeah, the, Arthur. The people, the, the people with agency. It's yes. Merlin and Archimedes. Yeah, because Arthur isn't the one who battles in a duel at the end. Right. It's Merlin. Yeah, Archimedes is just like, you stay over here. See, it's actually funny, because I, th- I think Aurora has more agency than Arthur does. No, I think so, too. Arthur because has, it, like, the least amount of agency we've seen of any Disney protagonist to this point, I think. Well, yeah, because he has no desires, really. Yeah, I he mean, wants to be a squire. He wants to be an assistant, is what he wants. Which, like, great, if that's what which, you like, want to do. Which, like, fine, good for him. I'm not, awesome. like, you, you chase that paper, boy, you go for it. Right. But, but then, like, yeah, he aspires to nothing else. At least Aurora was like, I want this. And then when she told the fairy godmother's like, hey, I found this guy and I really like him. And they're like, no, she had a response. And I guess like it kind of happens too when Arthur finally becomes the squire and Merlin's yeah. like, what the fuck are you doing with your life? And then he gets all upset, you know, and runs out and he's like, you never understand. But, yeah. like, again, if all he aspires to be is a squire and Merlin's lessons are just something he's going to brush aside. I know we just, we already talked about this, but why is the ending him becoming king, like, becoming the king? Because divine authority. <sighs> divine, divine right of kings. Which, which is why I'm saying, like, literally give us, like, there's a much better movie here. Yeah. About actual, like... About the actual, like, Knights of the Round. And, like, getting that together. And, like, the, like, the actual, like, Sword in the Stone. But they're so uninterested in it, despite that stuff being given so much reverence. And it's frustrating. Yeah. It's kind of like you watched, like, an hour, 20-minute prologue. Yeah. You know, because I felt, I feel like it's, the movie should start, like, the action should pick up where we end. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's the end of the first act. Maybe the second act. Yeah. Give me more about Arthur, like, actually learning how to, like, be in charge of something. But no. No. Do you know why his nickname's Wart? Is it just, like, to be demeaning? Probably. Okay. Fucking his, his, like, no, the, the, his exclamation every time he falls, like, whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) Iconic. (laughs) Truly iconic. Has never left my brain. Never. (laughs) 
oh incredible. my gosh yeah no i that Elis- that and it's funny too because you can tell they only had one of the three voice actors voice it oh, so it's like so fucking funny in the scene before it'll be like not that voice actor voicing the lines and, and then, then it just- comes out and, and then it's like <laughs> boom and it's the same take every time yep. it's not different recordings of it it's no. the same take uh, uh. <laughs> do you have any more to say do you have anything else? I'm looking. I said Merlin yeah. has main character energy. <laughs> God. Uh, I think it's because he like wants to be the main character deep he down. He badly does. <laughs> um, I at mean, some point, at some point, I wrote down Wart. Please don't sing. Mm-mm. Because he's doing, uh, he's when he's doing the dishes after. And I'm like, you cannot, you cannot pitch to save your life. Please fucking stop. Just shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. Um, the castle in this movie operates in the same way that Hell Hall does in 101 Dalmatians. And every other rich falling apart place in all the other movies we've talked about. It's an aesthetic that they like to hit, um, but goddamn, they do it well. They do it well. Um... See, but that's the weird thing. Here, I'm not sure it's necessarily deployed correctly. That's what uh, I was it, thinking too. Because, like, the only the only shitty one is is K. Yeah. Well, then I think Ec- it's just to Ector's not great, but Ector's not like evil. Right. He's, he's not trying the his best, but and he just listen. I don't blame a medieval lord for not trusting the wizard that shows up. I don't blame that. Uh, I've read enough old-timey myths to understand that, like, hey, if a wizard shows up, don't fucking trust him none. Additionally, like, I don't know, you saw how messy that kitchen is, and to think, like, oh, you know, we have someone working on that, and then to come downstairs and it's not done, like, I get it, like, I'd be upset, too. Yeah, it's frustrating. But maybe it's... And also, like... Merlin doesn't give him a good reason to to Merlin does not give him good reason to trust his magic because the first thing he does is like talk shit to Merlin and then Merlin disappears and keeps talking to him in a spooky scary voice I'm like you're not doing anyone any favors Merlin no but again I think that's just it's a power play he's like look at me I'm right, better but, than you. <laughs> right. But then you end up with Ector calling the dishes washing themselves black magic. <laughs> That was a great moment. I did. It's really an incredible enjoy that. moment. It's great. <laughs> so then maybe I, I then I think the decaying castle isn't necessarily a reflection on Ector's abilities to do whatever position he is in. That is kind of unclear. Maybe Lord. I don't know though. But maybe to show that K and that whole name is not worthy. Like K is mm-hmm. not worthy of king because that's what he's competing for throughout right. the movie. So right. I think maybe that's it. But I also will say that tower that Merlin sleeps in stressed me out as I hate a kid. It. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. It should have fallen it. like 20 minutes in. Yep. It stayed when, up way uh, too long. Yeah. When um when Pelinor shows up and the drawbridge slams, I'm like, that tower's coming down. It's going to, but it doesn't. Also, it doesn't. why didn't Merlin just fix it? He has magic. <laughs> I bet that would have taken a lot of juice. <laughs> Fair. Merlin Merlin's not Merlin's not about that life. He would need a long rest afterwards. Yeah, he really would. He would burn all his fucking spell slots. <laughs> uh um so 
the only character we haven't really talked about is Madame Mim. Yeah, she's fun. That's it? Yeah, I've got, like, uh, the fucking mad woman who lives in the woods is an old trope. Mm. Like, it's... It, she's got it way more together than I think the movie wants to, like, let on. Mm-hmm. Like, she's just crazy because she's, like, a strong, independent woman. Like, more... Like... I, I I'm sure we'll will have put some of the crew we will have absolutely put some of the cruel defense squad in the 101 Dalmatians episode. Um, I think that is more applicable to Mim because like oh she's mad she's crazy no she just doesn't like Merlin and honestly who can blame her yeah uh and she knows and she like she's a bit eccentric I, I think she's fine. Just yeah. let her live her life in the woods and Merlin just leave this poor woman alone. Sounds about right. I She freaked me out as a kid, 100%. Because yeah. I just thought, because again, like being like a very free woman who just kind of acts however she wants uh-huh. and does whatever she wants and really doesn't care about making people, unco- like loves to make people uncomfortable yeah because she knows it make like acting this way makes her uncomfortable as a kid i was like ah as an adult it's a fun scene and then like when she turns into like all the different things you know she's like just press my nose and then she turns into a pig right like that's i thought that was a fun sequence and that's also really cool creative animation yeah uh i i also think it's like just the ability to transform into anyone including a a tall lady that's pretty cool that's pretty that's pretty all right well, yeah, and then, like, you, like, she, but then it's cool, because it's, like, she can literally look however she wants, but yet she chooses to. And she chooses to, mm-hmm. to stay like this. Which and is I'm just like, hell yeah, awesome. more power to you. <laughs> it's like, you're happy, life's great. Um, okay, so there was that. And then also, like, so the main theme of Merlin's teachings, and I think this movie and this theme, I would say, has no resolution or real message, but like they're, it's like kind of like they're trying to get this in there and to make something of it, but nothing really comes of it. Is this whole idea of like brawn versus brains? Yeah, they're yeah, they're really trying to get that, but uh, Merlin's answer is to also just kind of brute force everything with magic. Mm-hmm. So that's not necessarily brains, buddy. I don't care what your fucking character sheet says. Yeah. But then it's interesting because, like, I think, like, the one scene where that does work well-ish is, like, we see Arthur in the, as a fish and how he kind of outsmarts the big fish, right? Yeah. But at the end of the day, like, that's not the only thing that gets him out like you know Archimedes also has to like swoop down and like kind of help out you know like so it's a bit of like outsmarting the fish but also like you know having the strength to swim away fast enough and get out of there right um but it's interesting because like I feel like the whole movie like again to make Arthur the king he's supposed to be the lesson is like we have to value brains in this brawny age and therefore, like, because Merlin's kind of the voice of that, it's not very nice to Braun, even though, like, apart from Kay being an asshole, like, Ector's not, like, we talked about, he's not really, like, the villain no. in this situation. And so it doesn't really come down on 
like I guess the jousting scene at the end, like they look kind of uncoordinated, but it's also jousting. Like it's not like a coordinated like, no dance. One, no, and also that's how that kind of fighting looks. Yes. Like that kind of like medieval fighting is just beat the shit out of each other with metal sticks more yeah. than like the cool sword fighting that like those kind of movies have trained us to think about. Right. Um. So I think it's like the movie is trying to set this up as like brains being like the moral messaging being like, you know, uh, brawn doesn't make a leader or like brains over brawn. But at the same time, it's like you don't like there's nothing in the movie that really solidifies that. It's like, no, because at the end, like Arthur has neither of them. I'm going to argue. Yeah. No, he head empty. No thoughts in that boy. And also can, stick ass boy can barely pull the sword out of the stone. Yeah. Like he might be divinely appointed, but he's struggling with just the weight of that sword. Yes. And so it's like you're just sitting there and you're like, so then what's the point of establishing all this in the beginning? Yeah. Also, it's medieval society. You have to actually be strong yes. to kind of do anything. Like kings weren't necessarily in battle with their with their soldiers all the time, but um you don't get to be king without throwing a few punches. Exactly. Like you ha- especially like you said in that time. Yeah. You know, you have to have both, I would argue. But again, it just goes with the whole point of this movie like where it goes nowhere. Like nothing, that nothing matters, really. Nothing matters. Yeah, nothing matters in this movie. That's the biggest problem. Yeah. Like it feels like we just vamped for an hour because there's nothing in this fucking movie. Again, coffee shop AU. It's like, what if Merlin hey, and hey, Arthur hey, hey, hey. became Let's be nice to the coffee shop AUs? Let's stop comparing the coffee shop AUs to Sword in the Stone. That's fair. The coffee shop AUs are very good. They're very good. But, like, it's that same vibe of, like, this 12-year-old was like, I want to take these two characters that I like and just have them go about everyday life. Yeah. And then occasionally, like, get get into into weird and wacky scrapes with uh, big birds and big fish. Right. But, again, like, (laughs) I think I'm just so disappointed because it's, like, again... Like we've been saying, the foundation is there. They just do nothing with it. And this is something that, like, someone paid money to put in a theater. It's not like it's, like, some story you can read on a website for free. Like, people paid money to see this. Yeah. And not even that. We spent our time on this. (laughs) We've talked for almost an hour about this. On top of watching the movie, I... Hmm. I might. Hmm. Mm? I might have to readjust my rankings. Hmm. Oh. Because right now I have this fairly middling, but hmm. Now it's like, what about? Yeah, I know that's me too. I'm. It's kind of like. Yeah, and I think it's in the middle because, like, I don't. Because we haven't had the actual mid come yet. Exactly. Like, the the mid for now is still pretty shit. Yeah, because and I I forget like how. Again, how mediocre a lot of these early, all this early stuff is. Yeah. And I think that, I think the biggest problem for me is like, it's not even mid in an interesting way. Exactly. Like we'll get to some interesting fuck ups later on, but man, this movie's just kind of here, huh? This is a movie they made. <laughs> and we have to watch it cause it's on the list. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. But Hey. It's not home on the range. It's not home on the range. And we watched it. 
And we're done. And we're done. Have a great what's week. Ne- <laughs> what's what's next? Jungle Book. Thank you so much for tuning in this week and an extra special thanks to our guests for their contributions. Hannah, Erica, Lindsay D, Sam M. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Join us next week for The Jungle Book. Until then, dream on, silly dreamers.